The year 2040 or even 2050, I am convinced that we will see offshore wind farms with floating foundations then also to be connected with electrolyzers and to produce hydrogen. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we look at developments in offshore wind. Offshore wind has the potential to be a key component in meeting global climate targets, but the sector is still developing. To help us understand the progress in this evolving sector, we spoke with Dr. Martin Skiba. Dr. Skiba is a global expert on offshore wind, and he is chairman of the World Forum Offshore Wind and a board member of the Offshore Wind Power Foundation. He spoke with my colleague, Joseph Meikert, on how Germany has designed its wind industry and how it is developing these technologies for global markets. Dr. Skiba was in Washington before heading to the International Partnering Forum, the IFP, in Atlantic City. Here's Joseph now to lead the conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Skiba. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you, and I'm glad we have a chance to have a short conversation about your experience in the offshore wind industry. Yeah, thank you very much. Maybe we can start just by introducing you to our audience. You've been in this industry for years. Can you give us a, a brief description of your experience in your current position? Yes, of course. As we started, as you know, in Germany in the 20th century, in the early years, 2000, around 2000, around millennium, we started with the development of offshore wind farms already. Some offshore wind farms have been developed already in the end of the 90s. And then we came up with our first offshore wind farm in operation in 2010. It took really 10 years to have our first demonstrator, our first offshore wind farm, like you have in the US with six turbines here. We, we managed to install 12 turbines in the first place in 2010, commissioned. And then from that point in time, when we had this experience and had solved all the obstacles and challenges which we saw during the course of the years, um, then, of course, we were prepared to build much more. And today we see 8 gigawatt, approximately 7.7 .7 exactly gigawatt up and running in the North Sea and the Baltic Sea, so both seas around Germany. So the, the offshore wind industry has grown much faster in Europe than it has in the United States. Now, the occasion of your visit is industry meetings, and, and it seems like there's a real drive to bring lessons from Europe and, and European expertise to help build what is a, a very nascent industry here in the U.S. So what are the headline messages from, from you and the German offshore wind industry when you're dealing with U.S. colleagues? Yeah, uh, I would like to, to give you a little bit the background also. I think a good headline in the first place is both countries now have a target of 30 gigawatt until 2030. The common goal, it came by accident a little bit. It was not a cooperation or really both sides did not agree on this target. It, it was developed by their own, by each of the countries, of course. But this is the headline. So how can we achieve to make it happen? That's the question above. How can we achieve that we, have, that we will see 30 gigawatts in Germany and 30 gigawatts in the US? So and then... You, you identify, you analyze, of course, the situation in the US and in Germany and how we are able to cooperate if, for example, we look to the supply chain. Supply chain is one of the key success factors. You have to build up your supply chain here in the US. You start now to build it up 
of course, we have huge experience in Germany with the supply chain. So we should help each other. That, that's, that's one of the message. We should cooperate. We should bring the companies together. We should bring the knowledge and know-how from Germany to the US and then invest in, your, uh, in, in the US in the supply chain together. I think it's pretty clear that we will not end up in shipping the turbines and towers and foundations from Europe to US. That has been done for the first six turbines, of course. But further, if we grow this industry, of course, you will have your own supply chain here in the US. And there's a huge playing field, there's a huge field for cooperation. And cooperation would then, I would say, accelerate the process. And acceleration, of course, is needed to achieve the targets at the end. What is the German Offshore Wind Initiative? Yeah, that's a project which we have initiated from two organizations, two associations, one in Germany, the German Offshore Wind Foundation. It's a foundation, really. And the other association is the World Forum Offshore Wind. It's a global association only for offshore wind. And the purpose of this project, German Offshore Wind Initiative, is to bring together companies in the US and in Germany to cooperate to set up joint ventures, to set up subsidiaries, to build manufacturers in the US, to accelerate the growth, to pave the wave and accelerate the growth of offshore wind in the US. So learning from each other and bringing companies together to be successful. That's the purpose and that is why we are here also in the US. And uh, we will take part next week in the IPF in Atlantic City, the big offshore wind conference in the US. And we are running a workshop and have a lot of activities to fulfill this target. So it's really interesting to hear you speak about this. You're, you're an engineer by training. You've been in the industry developing offshore wind, and, and now you're, you're working for the industry more broadly. So when you talk about the supply chain, what are the key elements of, of the offshore wind supply chain that need to be developed when you talk about developing a U.S. industry? And how has that process worked in Germany? Yeah, for example, I, I would like to start with the foundations. Mostly today, monopiles will be used. A monopile is simply a tower, yeah? nothing else. And uh, it will be rammed then into the soil afterwards. But to develop, to engineer such a monopile, where you have a rotating equipment on top of the turbine. It's rotating, it's dynamic loads, it's really a high sophisticated engineering task to come up with the right solution for this simple steel, which you see then in the sea. We, of course, in Germany, we have developed this industry already. We have two, today we have two foundation manufacturers that are really, yeah, uh, world class, I would say, yeah, EEW and Steelwind, these are the two companies in Germany. But we saw also, and that's something which I would like to, to, to give you also as a lesson, we saw in between also other companies which end not up successful. So if you grow an industry, of course, you try here, you, you, there's a little bit of try and error in it, and you consolidate the industry, the companies, and so on and so forth. That's a normal way how it works. So, but at the end, there were these two companies, and I think in the US, 
of course, uh, you need for to reach the 30 gigawatt, you need a lot of manufacturers. As said, the foundations will be not shipped from Europe. You have to do it here. There's no way. So this is an opportunity in the US for companies to invest in offshore wind facilities provided that, and that is always really important that you have on top a real stable regulatory framework that allows such kind of huge investments. And we are not speaking about 10 million or 20 million or $50 million for such a foundation facility. We are more speaking about 200, $300 million that you have to invest in a facility that is capable to produce 100, 150 monopiles per year. And so one facility will be not enough. You have to have more than one. But this is an opportunity for cooperation. Yes, really given an opportunity. If you start with a foundation manufacturer on your own in the US without the, the knowledge which we have gained in Europe, it will simply fail. I'm absolutely sure. That's really a high sophisticated, a complex task to set up such a facility and also to engineer, to develop the, the monopiles. But it's one of the promises of offshore wind that the nature of the, the equipment, right? It's big, it's heavy. The supply chains end up being relatively short as for a renewable resource as compared to, for instance, you know, photovoltaic solar panels where supply chains are highly concentrated, particularly in China. My understanding is that in the offshore wind industry, you, you, have to, you want to be building things relatively nearby the, the fields that are being developed. Is that true? Oh, yes, of course. You need the right harbor structure. You need areas uh, directly at the coast. For example, if you then would like to set up a blade factory, blades with more than 100 meter lengths, you cannot transport them on, on your highways. So you have to produce them directly at the coast and then ship it with the vessel to the construction site. So, of course, you are right. And this is one also one of the tasks to develop the right harbor infrastructure and the right industrial sites directly at the coast to allow such the, the construction of such, such kind of facilities for production of monopiles, blades, turbines, that will all come here, I'm pretty sure. But you have to support it. It, it cannot be done only with private money. You have to uh, support it from federal government or from the states to develop the harbors and the coast. Right. Yeah, the sort of common infrastructure. Yes. You know, we're, we're building offshore wind because we want to identify new resources of of low carbon power generation. And the European experience, as I understand it, has been one where the cost of offshore wind started relatively high compared to other resources, but has now become quite competitive. What have been the chief elements that have allowed the industry to cut costs and deliver low carbon power at now very competitive prices? I would say there are at least three topics. One is the, the technology driven topic of course, and that has to do with the size of the turbine. We started with five megawatt turbines already in Germany, and that was already a huge step compared with Denmark, for example, or UK. A five megawatt turbine, I was personally involved in the development, and that at this point in time was the biggest turbine of the world. Today, Siemens and Vestas and GE, General Electric, these are the three big turbine supplier, they are they are developing turbine sizes between 12 and 15 megawatt. 
So, and the size is one really key success factor in the offshore wind industry because the bigger the turbine is, the lower the costs are. You can simply, for example, imagine that you need for a 10 megawatt uh, turbine, one monopile. For two five megawatt turbines, two monopiles. And it's more expensive to have two monopiles to install them, to produce them, than to use one monopile for a 10 megawatt turbine. That's only an example. There are a lot of other costs attached to this turbine size. So turbine size is one important thing. The other point is, of course, we have learned so much along yeah, the first gigawatts which, which we have built. Uh, the first demonstrator project was very expensive, of course, and that's the normal curve, the normal learning curve, which you go then. Thirdly, we have introduced then very lately, but we did it some years ago, the auctions that has again achieved uh, with this introduction a, a cost decrease. Now, when you say auctions, you're talking about sort of creating competition in the bidding out of projects or yes. the, the cost to develop? Yes, that's a very interesting point also for you in the US maybe, but uh, I guess you are aware of it. Today, in every country, auctions for the lease or for the, for the electricity price have been introduced in offshore wind. But the question is always, is this the most successful method to introduce offshore wind in a country? If you look to Germany, we have chosen in the beginning what we are called a feed-in tariff. So it was a fixed price for everybody who is constructing and operating an offshore wind farm for 20 years. It was 11 or 12 cents, it changed over time. But that provide the security that indeed the investment, the capex which is needed and the opex will come back and there is a, a profit in this first phase. And then we switched uh, to the auction scheme, which provides more competition and the prices went down. And then the last element to your question it has also something to do with financing offshore wind farms, of course, because we have in Europe uh, very low interest rates and most of the projects are project financed. So there are huge depths behind. And this is, of course, a driving factor if the interest rates are very low. You mentioned earlier the policy context allowed the industry to grow, right? Feed-in tariffs. Yes. What's the type or level of subsidy that the industry is working with now in Germany? And, and how do you see the policy context evolving as the industry continues to grow? Yeah, that's a good question, of course. There's also a lesson, I, I would say, which we have learned today. Uh, we see that we don't need for running the offshore wind farms any kind of subsidies uh, and support any longer. Okay, you have to be aware that the grid connection is completely, for, for the costs for the grid connection is in Germany completely socialized. So it's not up to the investor of an offshore wind farm to invest in the grid connection. A separate companies are doing this on behalf of the government and it's completely socialized. And this assumption you have to, to do, and then it is possible to sell today the, the electricity directly via PPAs to the industry. And there's a huge need in Germany. 
because they all would like to get green electricity. The big companies have all their own targets to be carbon neutral or 50% reduction or whatever, their own targets uh, within the coming years. So there is a huge need for green electricity. You can simply finance it via PPAs in, in Germany. Uh, but the regulation has to be changed. And that's a, that's a process which is currently ongoing. What are you doing here, sir? <laughs> so there's, there's really a, a new amendment to the law underway. It's now, it has been already decided by the ministry, the Ministry of Economics and Energy in Germany. And it's now on the way to the parliament and the parliamentarian discussion has started. And it will put in force uh, until end of June, something like this. So very, very quickly process and Germany is on the way to introduce complete new auction design. To be honest, two auction designs. We can, I think we can talk uh, five hours about it, but we don't have the time for that. One auction is about contract for difference. That's, I think everybody know what, what it is. It's more a fixed price again. And the other auction will be run about qualitative criteria. A qualitative criteria, the bidder has to say, how will you be able to recycle the rotor blades? How many rotor blades will be recycled? There's only one example from that. So there are qualitative criteria. And on top of it, you have also to bid money simply to get the license then to be able to build the wind farm. This is a very nascent industry in the United States. The president has articulated a relatively ambitious goal, given the state of the industry today, 30 gigawatts of deployment by 2030. But we're going to need a lot more after that if, if offshore wind is going to be a significant contributor to decarbonization in the United States. Germany's got a similar goal, by coincidence, but starts, in a, starts a little bit ahead of us in terms of deployment. That didn't happen overnight. What, what conflicts did the German industry have to resolve as it was going through its earliest periods that the U.S. should, should learn from in hindsight? Hmm. Many, many uh, challenges have been there on the ground. I would like to start maybe with a permitting process, of course. Germany is not used to build structures at the sea. They, they had no permitting process in the beginning, so it, ha it had to be developed. It was developed over time, but it took quite a long time. Uh, we have a lot of authorities in Germany and uh, yeah, sometimes we are a little bit uh, too bureaucratic. So it took, it took quite a long time. Today we have a process. This process can be still accelerated and it will be accelerated also by the amended law now, which, uh, which I've said. But that was one of the points. The second point is the transmission. Of course, the transmission lines have to be renewed, have to be new builds have to be done. Uh, in Germany, we have uh, offshore wind farms in the north, but it's not, it's not the center of uh, where the ele electricity is used. That's more in the middle of Germany or south of Germany. So you have to have new transmission lines. So w when you say new transmission lines, do you mean new transmission lines that take this power from the shoreline to consumers or that sort of aggregate the power from a big farm and bring it to shore itself? Now it, it's uh, the transmission lines onshore from the north to the south. HVDC, DC transmission lines with a really high voltage, mm -hmm. new transmission lines that bring all the electricity that is produced in the north, not only offshore, also onshore wind. We have a lot of onshore wind. Bring that 
to southern area in, in, in Germany. Right. And that is maybe that's not a lesson for the US because at your coast, you, you, you can use your electricity directly. All the electricity, I guess, that will be produced by offshore wind farms. That's good. Uh, the other point is, of course, always the public acceptance. I don't know how it is in the US, but of course, we are a small country and we, are, we run a lot of trouble with public resistance against transmission lines, tourism, and of course, then all the nature protection associations. Uh, of course, this is always a topic in Germany, a huge topic. It took also time to solve this problem, by the way. You won't see an offshore wind farm in Germany, or there are only two or three examples close to the coast. They are far out in the exclusive economic zone and not in the coastal area. In the coastal area, I think nearly every square meter is protected by nature, by special species, uh, by birds and so on and so forth. And we have this wonderful Wattenmeer uh, in Germany. So nature protection plays a huge role. And we, it took also years to solve this or to, to do the debate, the discussion. Is it allowed to build here or there? So spatial planning was also a challenge, I would say early efforts here in the United States suffered the same challenges, right? Concerns about view shed, about multiple use, you know, who gets to use which square kilometer of, of the ocean is something that we still need to resolve as the industry scales up. There's a, a last one which I would like to mention, and that's for me the most important one, that's, that's really to have political, stable, regulatory framework on top. That's really important. That was not the case also in Germany during the last 10 years. It was not the case. We saw the first offshore wind farm starting in 2010, and then the first ones which have been connected. And yes, costs went not down with the first uh, offshore wind farms. And then there was a huge debate in Germany about the costs of offshore wind farms. And that has led to the situation that then in two, 2019, 20 and 21, we did not manage to construct an offshore wind farm, really only a few wind turbines. And the decision was already made in 2015, 16, because there was a change in the regulatory framework at this point in time. So that was not good. And then we saw in all Europe, the prices come down by the effects uh, that, that I've described already. And then they changed again the target. They set it up to 30 gigawatt now. They changed the regulatory framework. And okay, now we are on the road again. Uh, but it's always not good. It's not good for your industry also, because they are investing. And if this, if, if such a stop is coming, of course, you see insolvent companies and uh, nobody is trusting any longer. And it takes then quite a while to come up with trust again and to see uh, that the industry is uh, really growing again. So U.S. and Germany are longtime allies. We have a partnership focused on climate and clean energy, covers a variety of areas and offshore wind is one of them. What's your vision for a successful U.S.-German engagement on offshore wind? In particular, I'm interested because we often hear about European expertise and, and lessons learned benefiting the U.S., but how can the U.S. participate in the growth of this industry in a way that helps our, our European partners yield the most out of their offshore wind development and the growth of a global industry? I think that uh, my, my vision would be that uh, indeed we both countries under this heading of 30 by 30, 30 gigawatt by 2030 are successful and are cooperating closely. We don't compete, we cooperate. There is a fear of competition, 
because not only Germany has targets, also Asia and of course Europe. In Europe, there's a target of 135 gigawatt at 2030. So that sounds a little bit like competition. And why should we in Germany support the US? Because we see a huge market in Europe. Yeah? And that's not the right way. That's not the right way. That is not part of my vision. My vision would be that both countries are working together to get it done until 2030. And then, of course, to let the industry grow on an international scale. I would like to give you an example uh, for the audience. What does it mean in terms of, of figures? There is such a huge potential for offshore wind in the world. You cannot imagine. I calculated that the complete world electricity consumption can be covered by, a by an area with a radius of 500 kilometer in the sea. And if you look to the North Sea in Europe, it's exactly this area. We're going to need a lot of HVDC. Dr. Of Skiba. course, that's only a theoretical <laughs> example. But if you look to the Gulf of Mexico, it has an area which is three times of this area which is needed to feed the power to the global population. Of course, this is theoretical, but only to show you what potential is there. Mm. And if we then look to the West Coast uh, in the US, where you are started now to develop offshore wind farms with floating foundations, this is something where there's no mature industry behind. We are at the stage of demonstrators. It, had been, it has been not commercialized. It's not industrialized, this new topic for offshore winds is new technology, but it will come. We will also see that costs will come down. And that's, for example, also for the US, an interesting place to be, because here you have the chance to go into the lead, to be a leader at the end. You have a lot of, of sites there available, and that's also a big chance for the US, which I can see. One of the things that's interesting to me about offshore wind is that it is relatively high capacity, low carbon electricity that is increasingly competitive in price. In your experience, or do you have a view on how offshore wind will fit into a net zero energy system, principally as a power source for electricity, as a, as a source of power for electrolyzing hydrogen and, and producing green hydrogen? How do you see it fitting in over time? Yeah, I think we, we, we will see a development, but now we are speaking to look really far into the future, I would say. I'm asking for a forecast. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, so <laughs> it's, I think uh, hydrogen is one of the uh, huge opportunities for offshore wind farms. Let's assume we have maybe the year 2040 or even 2050. I am convinced that we will see offshore wind farms with floating foundations then also to be connected with electrolyzers and to produce hydrogen. That's, do you, do that's you have to a, desalinate the water before you uh, yes, electrolyze you have, it? You, you have to do it today, whether you have to do it tomorrow, I'm not sure. There are, uh, there's a huge research and development ongoing to prevent this, to invent uh, new electrolyzers. But this will be all possible, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And this is really a nice vision because then you are able to scale it up everywhere in the world. One of my observations has been that the because of the novelty of the industry, the potential challenges of, of using the sea for, for energy production and scaling up this industry where, where people already are fishing, both recreationally and commercially, enjoying waterways, using them for national security. There's actually an enormous role here for civil society 
to work alongside government and private industry to help design a, and build a successful industry. I fully agree with this. This is really an, uh, an important task. And if you could come up with such kind of projects where you are a sort of moderator, moderating this process, this solution pro process, this is an absolutely must have in such a phase of an industry. That would be very cool to see. Dr. Skiba, I want to thank you for joining us on the uh, CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Podcast. It's been really great having a conversation with you and benefiting from your expertise. I look forward to future engagement. Thanks to Dr. Skiba for joining us this week. We appreciate his insights into the offshore wind industry, especially as the U.S. offshore wind sector is at an exciting point of development. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. For updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.